As uh, we look today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, as I studied it this week, I really saw in new ways how all of the letter to the church of Corinth is connected and I think really in many ways centered around the table, uh, the table as a place that we gather, the table as a place that when we participate in Eucharist, we sense the communion that we're invited into with God and one another, and we consider afresh what that means. We become aware when we try to meet at the table of all the ways we still feel divided, of all the ways that we have been hurt and have hurt others, of all the ways that we have been wounded and all the ways that we have been the ones who have wounded others. And I know for myself, when I think about that, there is then a lot of challenge in what does it mean to gather at a table, and particularly uh, in a passage that talks about unity, we know that uh, too many times those in power have used unity as a rally cry to say, if you are marginalized, if you are oppressed, just keep waiting and keep waiting and keep waiting so that we can continue the status quo. And I don't believe that that's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about unity here, but what does it look like then for us to find unity through the lens of a cruciform care? Many of you, like myself, woke up to the news that uh, just this past night in Los Angeles, in Monterey Park, California, there was another mass shooting that at least 10 have been killed through that and at least a dozen more have been injured uh, as a predominantly Asian community was celebrating the Lunar New Year. And again, we can feel ourselves getting both angry and anxious. We can find ourselves at times maybe even becoming apathetic at the other times feeling like we are frozen in terms of not knowing what to do in a world that continues to be so dangerous, that continues to choose violence, that continues to hurt, and that uh, continues to seemingly do this oftentimes towards communities that have already felt marginalized. And so I want us to remember and to even keep and hold that fresh national wounding that we have uh, and to allow the cruciform care of Jesus to speak into it, to begin to think of when we find these places where there's immense tragedy and no easy answers, how do we seek to find some sense of healing and wholeness? How do we not run away from our pain and how do we not become paralyzed by it? What does it look like for the mystery of what Christ is doing on a cross to free us from that? So Paul begins, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been made clear to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, 
my brothers and sisters. Chloe's been spilling that tea. But I was caught, my attention was caught afresh in this passage about the being knit together. I think every time I've read or heard this passage before, I've thought primarily of fabric and thought of things like, oh, what does it mean that we are all a mosaic that could be, you know, different patches that are somehow knitted together as a quilt? Um, And for some reason in my mind, as I thought of this passage this time, I started thinking, without doing any sort of research or whatever, I was like, I really feel a sense of uh, what does it look like if there's division in a body for there to be a wound that needs to be stitched, that needs to be mended, uh, that needs to find a way for that kind of healing. Uh, And so I was really happy to find out I wasn't just going to be imposing my new idea on the text, but when I look back at the original languages, that that's actually more what it was talking about anyway. So I was like, okay, okay, this is good, this is good. Um, And I have had a pretty unremarkable life when it comes to injuries, and I would love for it to stay that way. Um, With the exception that uh, on the weekend, we were all globally going into quarantine for a pandemic. I never had to go to a hospital for my own behalf, never broken a bone, never had to have stitches, none of that. And come back from our first church service from the church I was working at at the time that we had just done it only streaming, right, for the very first time. And uh, come back and I lock myself out of my apartment. And there's a window that I know that I sometimes don't fully lock. And so I'm thinking maybe if I can just kind of like, it's kind of partially locked, but I could probably you know, sort of get it up, because I've, I've, all my stuff is in my apartment, my cell phone, my wallet, like, you know, everything, and I'm also thinking, like, the nearest friend I have, really, that would maybe take me in, especially since we've just entered into this global quarantine thing, uh, is, like, two miles away, and I can't even really contact them, because all my stuff's in the apartment that I'm now locked out of, and so I'm really trying to sort of work this window, and then, you know, it just shatters, and initially, I'm like, Okay, this is good. I look down. I'm like, I don't feel any pain. You know, I don't see any blood. I was like, okay, good. I've somehow made it out. And the next thing I know, it was like some horror film, right? There's just like blood everywhere. And I, I'm not exaggerating. I eventually, uh, by the time everything got all worked out, I had a friend who uh, is a nurse for the United States Army come and help me and clean stuff up. And she had been stationed in the Middle East where she was helping tend to people who've been wounded in battle. And she said, the most blood I ever saw was helping you clean up your apartment <laughs> in my life. Like it was really, really bad. And part of that was that this particular finger just was bleeding and I couldn't stop it. No matter the amount of pressure that I was putting on it, it was just gushing. Even when I got to the emergency room, they were like, we may have to cauterize this thing because we can't get it to stop initially. It was just bleeding and bleeding. Uh, And so I found myself going into a hospital at the start of a pandemic at a time that I probably really, really didn't want to be going into a hospital. Unfortunately, I only needed to be there for, you know, an hour or so before they could stitch it up. But for me, it really was an education around what it means to be wounded. I, I was invited into a whole new level of empathy because then for like the next four or five days, despite painkillers that I was given, right, I could hardly sleep because my hand just felt like it was throbbing with this intense pain, right? Um, 
Uh, yeah, I was almost gonna show you the pre-bandage, but I decided that's not what we needed to do. So, um, yeah. Uh, and my, my hand was just throbbing with pain, and I remember wanting to be so optimistic, like people, uh, I was telling people in, the, in my previous church community about it, like, how's the healing? I was like, oh yeah, I think like any day, it's gonna be there, it's gonna get better, and I kept, I would take the bandages off each day and look at them, like, oh, it's, it's still, that's, that's a, still a gaping wound. Um, like, you know, and I'm, I'm putting the stuff on it that, not the, not the ER, but nurse, nurse Dominique, who's my friend from the U.S. Army, has told me to do. She's given me the whole, this is what you really need to do to make this go well. And it just took so much longer than I ever thought that it would for that to find healing. And even to this day, I don't have, like, you know, there have been things that are cut. I don't have full feeling in this finger. That's just gone. Um, but it also is to a place that, though I still have an incredible scar, on that finger, I will never forget it. Uh, it no longer causes me the same amount of pain that it once did. And I believe that Paul realizes that our human lives are messy. Part of the reason Paul sees Jesus at the center of our spiritual journey is because Jesus is one who has entered into the mess of humanity, who has experienced the worst that our selfishness can offer in terms of his death on a cross has absorbed that and can meet us in fellowship with that, can companion us, knows what it means to need to be knitted together with one another, to have wounds that don't seem to want to heal. And even when they do, that there are still those scars that other people find themselves touching. Paul uh, goes on to say uh, that we are to be of the same mind and the same purpose. Now, here is not something that's a call to conformity. This is not a sense of everybody should just be like lemmings and you all need to uh, find this agreement with me, Paul. Uh, if that were the case, we will see later in our passage that Paul's going to say there was a Paul group, right? Like there were people that are like, I'm team Apollos, I'm team this. There was a team Paul, and Paul's not like, yeah, everybody, get on team Paul. Uh, instead, what we're talking about here is having a shared values. <laughs> Recently, as a leadership team, we revisited our LGBTQ journey description. And as a church, as we have uh, grown and walked with that. Uh, one of the things we wanted to make sure was clear as we added some language to that was that we as a community uh, are always going to want to prioritize and to care for those who have been marginalized, that we want our LGBTQIA siblings to feel that this is a space that they can be safe, that they can journey together in their spiritual lives and that there's not going to be some sense of, well, hey, we know that we're all at different places, so if you, you get hurt, you get hurt. Uh, that no, we see through scriptures that God is a nonviolent God, that Jesus Christ is one who prioritized those who have been marginalized in their care and that we want to be a community that does something similar. And so Paul is calling us to shared values, to that same mind and same purpose. But it isn't a purpose that is power over 
people or that prioritizes those who are elite, right? It's the power later in 1 Corinthians. Paul is going to chastise those who have lots of influence and privilege and power precisely because when it comes to this communion table, they are neglecting those people without power, without privilege. And so Paul's shared mind and shared purpose is rooted around this same value of empathy. And so our text continues, verse 12. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul, in multiple places, chooses to use the imagery of our community, of our communal life as a body. And he often refers to Jesus as the head, which probably does have some hierarchical sense of structures. But it occurred to me uh, what a radical image that is, because already calling Jesus as Lord, it seems like it would be easiest for Paul to lean into, like, Jesus is the king, and you are the subjects, and I am the regent, or, you know, the whatever, and here is the power structure and where you easily fit, and we know that we have our separate lives, and you are to benefit, and it all goes upward in terms of who gets that. But instead, he chose a much more organic, connected thing. He even talks about that in other places, right? If, if one part of the body is hurting, the whole part of the body hurts. That's what I knew those first couple of weeks of the COVID quarantine as my finger just felt like it was throbbing and I could not go to sleep. My whole body was not feeling good. They were like, oh, finger, we don't need you. It's like, finger, we need you to get better stat, right? Because it is this organic connection that we are invited into. Uh, Richard Rohr has a quote that I thought about, especially a lot when I was doing college ministry, because uh, especially with incoming students, uh, it would seem like, you know, that you, you've been whatever you were in high school. You were the first chair instrument. You were the captain of your volleyball team. You were the editor of the yearbook, whatever thing it might be that was your deal. And then everyone gets to college, and as a college minister, I just sort of see people like, it's like, oh, now what do I have, and who am I, and who are going to be my friends, and people sort of just like running around trying to figure that out for a few semesters. Um, And it made me, and I often thought of this quote from Richard Rohr, many others give up their boundaries before they have them. Always seeing identity in another group, experience, possession, or person. Beliefs like, she will make me happy, or he will take away my loneliness, or this group will make me feel like I belong, become a substitute for doing the hard work of growing up. It is much easier to belong to a group than it is to know you belong to God. I think part of what we see here in these slogans, like, I'm Team Jacob, or whatever, uh, is... (laughs) People are like, oh, now we are going to have to get into the teams. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, anyway. Uh, I'm not going to detour there. Um, part of what we see happening there, I do think, is that it's much easier in our thirst for community and our thirst for a sense of belonging to kind of have this faux belonging that just sort of says, oh, okay, if we all seem very homogenous, then that must be it, and I'll know that I can fit in and that I can have a place and that this is my, you know, where, where I am. And, and you see that in college as a 
as a college minister, I would see people, they'd be like, this is going to be my best friend. They're going to be at my wedding standing by me. And I'm like, you're not going to even know who they are in a semester, uh, which often did happen, right? Like, it's like, it's like, it's like this, this is only this way because you happen to have a same lunchtime right now. Like, you show up at the cafeteria right now. Next semester, it's something totally different. Um, we're invited to, I think, pay attention to our thirst for community, for belonging, but also not to rush to the lowest common denominator to find it. That we are invited to find around this table, this table of this nonviolent God who wants to let us know of God's radical love for all, that there is healing, that there is forgiveness, that there is redemption and renewal for all, that we can work together and collectively we don't have to settle for business as usual. We can heal not only individually, but collectively in solidarity. That there is this table that we are invited to and that belonging around this table is hard, right? We have known even as our own community, the challenges, the pains, the scars that we have felt over the past years. And I'm sure there's more to come because being humans together is messy. But we are invited also to lean into a care for one another that can bring that healing. Verse 17 goes on to say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul wants to be clear in case we were getting into some sort of like who, who is the best preacher with sneaker that I can follow? Who is the personality with the biggest brand and the most followers? Uh, and I'm going to somehow make that my new sort of pseudo spiritual identity because I like that they get mad at the people that I like or they're the kind of person I would like to ideally be like someday. That uh, this is not about any sort of rhetorical giftedness or any of these kinds of things, that instead, again, when Paul seeing Christ as one who comes in solidarity with the poor, with the marginalized, with the hurting, with the outcast, he's like, this is a foolish message. If you're, if you're being won over because of the brand of some person or some community that you're following, then you are missing out on the one who instead says, I, I identify with those that nobody tends to want to identify. I, I get in the mess with people who have been overlooked, who have been burned by institutions, who have been told, you can have a place at this table, but you don't get to have a voice at this table. And Christ is saying, and Paul through about Christ is saying that that is not where we find power. That we find power instead when we are in solidarity with those and say, no, you can come to a table where you are free to be all of who you are. And we believe that as we are connected to one another and to God, that we are finding the grace and the healing and the hope that we need, that we will have the collective vision for how we move forward to tackle the systemic structures that continue to oppress and to harm all of us. I am actually not this far. 
I believe uh, this is in the legend of Korra, and I'm still in season three of Avatar, The Last Airbender. Um, but someone I follow on Twitter posted this quote, and I really liked it. And so I just went and saw just like the 30 second or like two minute video clip of this that's further on in the series than I am. But I don't feel like spoiler alert because this stuff's been out for a long time. Uh, but Aang and Korra, who have known each other for a very long time, and Korra is really starting to doubt uh, her own giftedness and place and skill and uh, if she's going to be able to live into all that she had hoped that she could be. Uh, and there's finally this point where Aang says to her, you have finally connected with your spiritual self. And Cora is so confused because it seems to be at a place where she has kind of lost everything and she seems to be adrift and hopeless. And she says, how? And Aang says, when we hit our lowest point, we are open to the greatest change. That there is something about being frustrated and exasperated and not feeling like we have any of the tools or resources or time or patience that that it says, okay, yeah, it's not going to be just a little minor thing. Maybe there perhaps are some big structural changes that are going to have to happen in my life and in our world if there's going to be something, and perhaps then we can begin to hope. I believe uh, part of what Paul sees as the foolishness of the cross is this, uh, what one uh, theologian has termed as an ironic literalism. In ironic literalism, a full acts on the letter of the language and ignores the spirit intended by those employing it. Uh, one example that many of you may be familiar with, right, is Amelia Bedelia. And especially like in some of the early, not like the, two, like the 90s, 2000s Amelia Bedelia, she kind of went in a different direction. But in the original Amelia Bedelia, Amelia Bedelia is a housekeeper for an incredibly wealthy family. And they're always giving her you know, tasks like, hey, would you draw the drapes? And then Amelia Bedelia sketches on a sketch pad. Here, I drew the drapes. You know, Will we be sure to dust the furniture? And Amelia Bedelia is throwing powder all over the couches. I, I've dusted the furniture. Thank you. you know, they, they give Amelia Bedelia all kinds of tasks, and she takes them literally. And it seems to be, in some sense, this protest to say that you've tried to outsource all of your domestic responsibilities. You don't see me as an equal or as important or valuable. And yet when I don't just quietly do all that you need me to do, you see how frustrating and hard it is and how essential actually all the things that Amelia Bedelia is doing in her world, right? It takes this childish story, but in her ironic literalism of it, doing the very thing that the people are asking her to do, she is showing them just how essential and important she is. She is inviting them to understand and to appreciate her humanity. And there's something similar happening on the cross. We know that part of the whole deal is that they're making fun of Jesus as being a king, right? We even read in the Gospels how they faux-worshipped Jesus. Oh, you were the king. He goes, oh, if you really are the king, then come down. Uh, there's this whole pageantry of mockery around Jesus and the kingship that Jesus has. There is this literal, for anyone that would be crucified, part of the imagery was, oh, you thought you didn't have to know your place? You thought you didn't have to just be 
in this low, low place in our hierarchical structure, you thought you could somehow get ahead. Well, if you want to be lifted up, we will lift you up on some wood and some nails, and that will teach anybody else to ever think that they could somehow get out of line in the empire. And yet, Paul sees in this this ironic literalism because he's like, yes, 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 yes. You, you did lift him up and you were lifting up the very person you needed to lift up. And that person is finding solidarity with all those who would dare to be lifted up and to say that empire does not have the last word, that we do not have to settle for things as they are. I was recently with uh, someone and we were talking uh, about big structural things like economic systems and, you know, criminal justice systems and all these kinds of things that just feel like overwhelming. And most of us were trying to be pretty pragmatic and say like, yeah, you know, you got to find a way to sort of work within the system and do this stuff. And this person just kept saying, for now. And you know, so yeah, 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 but you got to, yeah, for now. And I just loved the way they were injecting, uh, whether they would see it or not for me, this sort of subversive for now that says like, yeah, 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 I, I get that's where it is, but I also don't want any of us to lose sight that it's just for now, and that this old system is going to pass away, and we need to be on the vanguard of welcoming in, creating, developing this new way of life. I want to close with some words from Apo Tutu. Uh, if you know anything about her journey, uh, she was an Anglican priest in South Africa. Uh, her father, Desmond Tutu, and when she uh, married her wife, uh, the Anglican communion had a lot of pushback on that. She no longer is able to preside over this table uh, any longer um, because of her being true to herself and who God created her to be uh, and choosing to be with the love of her life. And so she talks about both when she speaks and when she writes a lot, not only about what it has meant to be a South African and to go through all of that apartheid journey, but also what it's like to be a queer person who is still trying to be hopeful and relational uh, to the church. And so uh, this is some poetry that she has in a wonderful book called Forgiveness and Reparation, The Healing Journey. And I want to just read this as we close. Repair begins with posture. Imagine a liturgical dancer. What shape would his body form to connote humility? Head bowed, shoulders slumped, hands achingly empty. What is the gesture that admits, I did this thing that hurt your heart? Where does a body bend or twist to say, I am sorry? And what folds or stretches to plead, forgive me? Imagine a dance where the movements cascade hard and fast, unable to contain their own urgency, or stutter tentative and slow, so unsure. Would there be music? The slow, low moan of anguish, or maybe just the percussion of feet on floor and the hush and hiss of breath. Imagine a liturgical dancer with a needle and a golden thread reaching out to repair the ragged edges of peoples and generations and years of hurt. What do we know of repair? 
We know it is from the lives we live daily and the homes we inhabit and the people we love dearly and the spaces where friendship creates the safety to explore our own brokenness and despair. What do we know of repair? We know it from the people who see us when it is safe to own the worst of ourselves. They are the ones who deserve the best of ourselves, an inch ever closer to blessed dream of ourselves. The beauty of God sees when God sees us. What do we know of repair? We know from our friendships and our loves that the rep reparations demanded when anger is speaking may shift when anger is satisfied by acknowledgement and trust sees us return, not just once, but once and once again to the work of remaking our relationships. What do we know of repair? We know that it is not shaped by the perpetrators leading. We know that only the victim can describe perfectly the shape and form of the injury and what it will take to heal. What do we know of repair? We know that when we begin, God will meet us there. Please forgive me. When the payment of reparations has begun, these words have such a different tone than the demand made when forgive me was paired with I'm sorry and formed the whole of the healing dance. When the words I am sorry begin, the dance and reparations take their own place on the stage. Then forgive me can be a hope founded in mutuality.